This is the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. Today, we're going to take a second look at diabetes. Type 1 diabetes comes about when beta cells are destroyed, resulting in little to no production of insulin by the pancreas. Now, this type of diabetes may be known also as insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus, or IDDM. The good thing about this is that it is less common than type 2, but the bad thing is it's much more serious. Heredity does play a role in whether a person is at risk for the development of type 1 diabetes. The causes of type 1 diabetes are not clear, but it does appear that antibodies are produced that attack the cells and destroy them. Keep in mind that these beta cells are found within the islets of Langerhans that we discussed in the last lecture. Because there's no insulin or inadequate amount of insulin, blood sugar levels will continue to rise. It's not unusual for a patient to have a blood sugar level of 400 or higher. Because a portion of this glucose spills over into the urine, your patient will begin to diurese large amounts of fluid leading to dehydration. In addition, when the body is not able to utilize the glucose that's circulating in the blood because there's little to no insulin to allow it to go into the cell, metabolism of fat becomes the method by which the body attempts to provide energy. This catabolism of fat makes the dehydration worse as it leads to constant thirst, also known as polydipsia, massive urination, known as polyuria, and weight loss regardless of how much the patient eats. If left untreated, the patient can progress to diabetic ketoacidosis, a life-threatening condition that we'll talk about in just a few moments. As we stated earlier, heredity may also play a role in whether a patient develops type 2 diabetes or not. It's well known that patients who are obese and inactive are much more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. At one point, type 2 diabetes used to be known as adult-onset diabetes. This is no longer an accurate description as it can be manifested in patients as young as 12 years old. The onset of type 2 diabetes is not nearly as dramatic as what we see with type 1. For the most part, blood sugar levels are not as high as seen in type 1. A second reason is that there's still enough insulin that's being produced and is effective enough to forestall the metabolism of fat as a primary source of energy. We don't see diabetic ketoacidosis in these patients very often either. However, there is a condition known as hyperosmolar, hyperglycemic state, shortened to HHS, that we'll discuss in this podcast as well. The initial treatment for type 2 diabetes is lifestyle management with reduction of carbohydrate intake as well as an increase in exercise. The patient is strongly encouraged to try to bring weight down to a more normalized state. If this doesn't work, then the patient may be placed on oral hyperglycemic medications. Now, it's important to remember that this is not an oral form of insulin, as insulin would be inactivated by the acid in the stomach. Instead, these medications have a twofold process. First, they attempt to improve insulin secretion, and second, they attempt to increase the number of insulin receptor sites found on the cell wall. If this fails, or if your patient is non-compliant with lifestyle change, which is not unusual, the last line of defense or treatment is the administration of insulin. Regardless of whether it's type 1 or type 2 diabetes, there are a number of negative outcomes if the condition is not managed. These include the depletion of protein in the body that leads to the wasting of muscles, the increased use of fat for energy sources which can result in diabetic ketoacidosis, and lastly, because serum glucose is not reduced, the amount of glucose circulating in the vasculature remains high. This results in a denigration of the lining of the vascular system in general and the arteries specifically. If left unchecked, your patient could suffer blindness, stroke, heart disease, 
and renal failure. Let's take a look at some of the diabetic emergencies that can come about. Hypoglycemia is a condition that results when there's not enough serum glucose circulating within the body. Generally, we see symptoms that begin to manifest themselves when the levels drop to below 60 milligrams per deciliter. Keep in mind that some type 1 diabetics can have much lower blood sugars and still remain conscious. Several years ago, when I worked in Georgia, we had a patient who was a type 1 diabetic. She would regularly call us on the non-emergency line to simply ask us to come over and check her blood sugar because she just didn't feel right. Having become very familiar with this patient, we'd always run emergency to her house, even though she had called on the non-emergency line, and the dispatcher said that she sounded awake, alert, and coherent. It was not unusual for us to get there to find that she had a blood sugar level of 20 and still be functioning at a normal cognitive level. There are several reasons why a patient may become hypoglycemic. These include patients who take a higher than normal dose of insulin, those who don't eat because they're sick, patients who engage in unusually vigorous exercise without eating afterwards, as well as some antibiotics. The most common antibiotics that can bring this on include Leviquin, Erythromycin, and Cipro. Signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia include anxiety or nervousness, combative behavior, confusion, a rapid weak pulse accompanied by cold, clammy skin. If not treated rapidly, your patient can progress to having seizures and subsequently cardiac arrest. Hypoglycemia should be suspected in any patient with an altered mental status. Therefore, all of these patients who present with an altered mental status should get a blood glucose level check regardless of their history. Patients with diabetes usually become very good at recognizing the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. Because of this, they will generally carry some type of snack such as candy or crackers so that they can offset the drop of blood sugar when they sense it coming on until they're able to eat some protein and complex carbohydrates. In the past, all patients in hypoglycemia received an amp of 50% dextrose. Keep in mind that this medication is very acidic and can cause necrosis if it infiltrates while you're giving it. It can cause blood sugar levels to rapidly spike, which can bring around problems of its own. Therefore, most physicians recommend the administration of 10% dextrose in water. If you're not able to get an IV started, glucagon can be given either intramuscularly or via intranasal. Keep in mind that glucagon raises the blood sugar by stimulating the breakdown and release of glycogen stores found in the liver. These patients must be transported to the hospital as they have no reserve to fall back on should the blood sugar level drop after you've left. Glucagon may not be effective in patients who suffer from liver disease, who are malnourished, or elite athletes. Diabetic ketoacidosis, also known as DKA, is most frequently seen in patients who suffer from type 1 diabetes. If you'll recall, type 1 diabetes comes about because of a resistance to or inadequate production of the levels of insulin. Because of this, the blood glucose levels begin to rise as the glucose is not able to enter the cell. The cells now become starved, even though there's plenty glucose circulating within the body, the insulin receptors will not allow it to enter into the cells. They switch over to fat metabolism. Some products that are produced by this fat metabolism include fatty acids and glycerol. This glycerol is an inadequate form of glucose and thus provides a little bit of energy to the cells. As the fat continues to be metabolized, waste products known as ketoacids begin to form and your patient begins to become very acidotic. Because of this acidosis, potassium moves from the intracellular space into the intravascular space. 
As the patient suffers from an increased state of urination, this potassium is passed out of the body, causing a deficit. Sodium is also moved out and replaced by hydrogen. This increase in hydrogen ions only serves to make the acidosis worse. Vomiting is very common. This massive urination accompanied by the vomiting leads to dehydration and hypovolemic shock. Your patient has a net loss of potassium, but he or she may remain hyperkalemic. Look for EKG changes that include a longer than normal PR interval, a wide QRS, and tall peak T waves. Your patient may progress to having seizures. Generally, these patients are in a deep coma. Your treatment for them is limited to fluid replacement to try to offset the dehydration. We don't administer insulin pre-hospital. Doing so could lead to a rebound hypoglycemic. These patients will be admitted to the intensive care unit and insulin will be administered over hours, if not days, in order to try to normalize their blood sugar levels. In hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state, as we said, known as HHS, glucose passes into the urine causing severe diuresis. This results in the patient becoming dehydrated. In this disease, you'll often see blood sugar levels of 1,000 milligrams per deciliter or higher. Quite often, when you do a D-stick on your glucose monitor, it will simply read high. The difference here is that there's still enough insulin that's active to prevent your patient from metabolizing fat and producing ketone bodies. Your area of treatment for these patients is fluid replacement. These patients are truly in an emergency state having a death rate as high as 70%. This may be because symptoms are very subtle in the early part of the condition and may only become apparent to the patient or family as your patient prepares to crash. It's normally seen in geriatric patients. Early signs and symptoms include increased urination as well as thirst. The mucous membranes become dry and sunken. Patients present an tachycardia. We will generally not see the Kussmaul's respirations because your patient's not as toxic. Treatment for HHS is fluid replacement and rapid transport to an appropriate facility. Thanks again for joining the 10-Minute Medic. Next week's podcast, we'll take a look at the X-rated medication that we give in trauma, more commonly known as transemic acid. Again, thanks for joining.